This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a second year doctoral student in history at the University of Oxford. I'm based in the UK. I study rumors of epidemic disease in 17th century North America. So essentially I study how people thought about and spoke about diseases. I'm particularly interested in the role of disease in colonial contexts. I'm Maya. I'm American, but a permanent resident of Canada. I have a master's in public health, and my work focuses on the sexual and reproductive health of adolescents, infectious disease, and monitoring and evaluation. My primary area of focus is Sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm extremely interested in reflections of colonialism in disease and public health. Today, we are going to be talking about cholera. Cholera is the name of the disease caused by the bacteria Vibrio cholerae, and there are actually hundreds of strains of this bacteria, but only two of them will cause people to actually get ill and start an outbreak or an epidemic. They like to live in water, usually warm, a little bit salty, um, but they don't take well to chlorine or bleach. Cholera has honestly been around forever, and Angel's going to get into the minutiae of that. It's not actually forever, uh, but there are reports of what sound a lot like it from thousands of years ago all over the world. Everybody had something to say about it. And the actual etymology of the name cholera could come from a few places. And I found this extremely charming letter to the editor describing a few of them. Um, it seems like the name itself was first written down by Hippocrates, and therefore it's likely Greek. But there are a couple options for its specific origin. So it could come from Cole, which means bile. It could come from cholera, which seems quite likely, or cholidra, which means gutter. And it's suggested that that's how we know that the ancient Greeks had actually seen cholera because it makes your body act like a gutter, like shooting all these nasty things out. It could be from colas, meaning intestine. It, there's some good options there. Um, and cholera has also had some other fun names throughout history, but I'm going to let Angeliki talk about those. Okay, so how does somebody contract cholera? Usually you get it from drinking a liquid, usually water from an unpurified water system, or eating raw or undercooked food like shellfish, which is so disappointing because ceviche is so amazing. <laughs> These objects are usually contaminated by feces due to an unclean water system or a sanitation issue, e.g. bad food prep practices. The acids in your stomach can kill it if you're lucky, but once it gets into your digestive system, you start to get sick, which is why one of the go-to rules of travel for places that are likely to have cholera is boil it, peel it, cook it, or leave it, which is a great rule of thumb to avoid eating contaminated foods. And as we talk about the different symptoms, you'll see sort of how it can spread so easily and why people might be so likely to have these feces on their hands. Based on my reading, and maybe this is just like the historical accounts being a bit hysterical, but you can start to show symptoms in the morning and then by the evening you can die. Is that about the... Yep. Okay. That's about the amount of time we're yep. talking about. Great. Yep. So once you get cholera, the bacteria gets into your test intestines and it releases a toxin. This toxin makes the cells that line your intestine release a lot of water, which in turn makes your body diarrhea or occasionally vomit. And let me give you an unfortunate visual here. So the human body has about 44 liters of water spread around it. And now I had to look this up for my fellow Americans. That's 11 gallons, which also did not help me. So 11 gallons is 186 cups. And that also did not help me 
And it turns out that I'm just not very good at visualizing volume. So Okay, but if your frame of reference is like cups for baking, like when would you ever bake with that much water? Right. It's like a lot of water, I think is sort of the baseline here. So when you get a bad case of cholera, you can lose 20 liters of water in 24 hours. So that's like half the water in your body. And if you uh, follow us on Instagram, great plug here to please follow us on Instagram at insickness2020, um, you'll see a picture of a strange wrinkled baby drawing. And it's a good visual for what extreme dehydration is like. And obviously you just sort of can't survive like that. And that's when cholera becomes really deadly. A single episode of diarrhea from a person who has cholera can cause the amount of bacteria in the environment, like your physical environment around you, to increase by one million times. The symptoms can start anywhere from a few hours to a few days after you ingest the bacteria, and only about 20% of people who ingest it actually get really sick. But if you do have the symptoms of diarrhea and vomiting, you can get dehydrated in a matter of hours, go into septic shock, or even die all in the same day. Cholera is another one of those diseases that really is everywhere. And a lot of people are sick, but because it occurs most drastically in the developing world, it's maybe not in our public consciousness as much. Um, it, it's frequently called a disease of inequality, and I'll just explore that a little bit more when I sort of go more in depth into it. Um, but approximately two to four million people are infected each year with around 100,000 deaths. And there is actually a huge range of uncertainty around that number because a lot of places where it happens have really limited diagnostic capacity. In places where cholera is common, it's often diagnosed just by symptom recognition, um, in part because there's just a, such a basic treatment for it and it doesn't really differ from other diarrheal treatments. And in part because the only way to confirm a diagnosis is really through a stool sample to identify the bacteria. And that's done at a lab. So in many regions, those lab resources aren't really available. And it's important to identify cholera specifically because you want to avoid a major outbreak. There is a really fast dipstick test, but um, it doesn't really have super good validity. So people tend to not rely on it. The most common treatment for cholera is ORS, or oral rehydration solution. Sometimes this is in a packet that you mix in with clean water, or you can make your own. It's basically just electrolyte replacement. So you mix a certain amount of sugar, salt, and water, and that's ORS. Or drink something like Pedialyte. One trick that I learned in Haiti was that they would just pour salt packets into a bottle of Sprite because the Sprite's super sweet and you know the water's clean. And honestly, it's kind of delicious. Cholera has like a 50% mortality rate, but with rehydration, appropriate rehydration therapy, you can drop this to 1%. So even just this basic ability to give people electrolyte replacement is so critical. If the dehydration is really advanced, patients can get put on an IV for like extreme rehydration. And on occasion, patients will be given antibiotics, which will reduce the symptoms in those who are really seriously ill, but it's not really considered a critical part of cholera treatment. So that's the basics of cholera. Who's ready for some historical context? Always. The excitement is palpable. So today we're going to be talking a lot about the 19th century, um, which is not what I normally do. Um, I'm kind of relieved to make my exit from the early modern period, if I'm honest, and have a little break. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a brief overview of the history of cholera, we think, 
uh, including your favorite part, which is names. I love names. I know you love names. Uh, and then we're going to move on to London in the 1850s with a couple of case studies slash examples that will allow us to talk about some of the broader issues. So the origins of cholera, as with most historical diseases, they're in dispute. And I'm sure that's that's not the last time I'm going to say that. Uh, we think there were outbreaks in the 5th century BC in India and in the 4th century BC in Greece. However, there have been seven pandemics, which I'm going to outline right now. The first one is in 1817, it starts. Uh, the disease spreads globally from the Ganges Delta in India, and cholera hits India, China, Japan, parts of Southeast Asia, much of the Middle East, and Madagascar, and the East African coast. And then it dies down in 1823 before it reaches Europe. So obviously a lot of contact with India because colonialism. Uh, lots of trade routes being established, and that leads to the second pandemic, which is 1826 to 1837. Uh, and that starts in Russia, spreads to Poland, and then to the rest of Europe, North Africa, Eastern North America, some of the regions affected. Russia, Germany, Hungary, Egypt, London, Paris, Quebec, New York, Mexico, and Cuba. So the third and deadliest pandemic, according to my research, is 1841 to 1859. Same places, it's everywhere. Fourth pandemic, 1863 to 1875. And within this time frame, in 1869, the steamboat is invented, so people are moving even more quickly. Mm. So this one, London escapes because it has recently had its sewer rehauled. So yeah, it was only when industrialized European cities also began following London's lead and rehauling their own sanitation situations that they began to have better luck when cholera turned up. But most of the world was not and is not so fortunate. So the fifth pandemic is 1881 to 1896, and then the sixth pandemic, 1899 to 1923. And then the seventh pandemic, which is still going on, by the way, began in South Asia in 1961, Africa in 1971, and then made it to the Americas in 1991, and it's ongoing. I feel like it's just crazy to note how long every single one of those ep pandemics are, epidemics are. I've never seen pandemics that are lasting decades before especially when we're talking about mortality rates like these ones and something so cataclysmic when it does arrive like it's amazing that it's able to sustain itself within population centers i guess is what i'm getting at yeah well the only other comparable example that really springs to my mind is the fact that like hiv is an ongoing pandemic technically right because people are just still continuing to get sick and that's the thing with cholera is that when one one person still has it the likelihood that other people will just keep getting it from them is is huge right and it's because if they get sick one time so many other people can then get sick if they don't have the infrastructure in place that prevents it so when you've got it in these places that still don't have sewage and clean water treatment whatever then it's just going to keep going 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 but it's still insane i mean even if we're talking about a comparison between cholera and HIV. Like, HIV is not a disease that kills you right away, whereas cholera, we're talking about 24 hours, you're dead. Well, so only 20% of people are symptomatic. And even within that, you, like, not all of those people who are symptomatic are going to get it so badly that they're immediately going to go into shock. Like, I, I would say that myself and probably most of the people that have worked in developing countries have, like, had cholera. I There have been a couple times when I was really ill that I would almost put money on the fact that it was cholera 
And I just kind of like made sure I drank a lot of bottled water mm-hmm. and tried not to poop my pants. <laughs> like, right? Like a lot of people don't die from it or never yeah. got tested for it or whatever, but they still had it. And actually, this is kind of a, a good segue into the naming um, because diagnosing cholera is actually really difficult. And if it's difficult for us now, like, can you imagine how difficult it was in the 19th century trying to do this pre-germ theory? Like, if, you, if you're not dead from cholera, like, if you're not <laughs> having that, like, catastrophic shock thing happening, then you might not ever be sure. You might just think you had gastroenteritis. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, naming. I'm going to give you a quick lesson in ancient Greek slash 19th century medicine. Uh, the term cholera has been, u- it has been in use for a very long time, so... Um, You talked about Hippocrates before, and Hippocrates is the big name in medicine, both in ancient Greece and in Europe from, I'd say, from about the 13th century, like in the Middle Ages, starts to be circulated again. Uh, And according to Hippocrates, health is a balance of four humors. So you have, stop laughing! (laughs) I'd just like to note out that we still use the Hippocratic Oath. In modern medicine, which I feel like says a lot. Go on. As long as we're not still talking about blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, I think we're good. So those are the four humors. And the whole idea of medicine is to uh, have the ideal balance between the humors. And this can vary a lot from person to person. So you're talking about personalized medicine, but on the basis of these four humors, which will be in an ideal balance, depending on your temperament. So, yellow bile is called choler, and an illness would be called a cholera or a cholera morbus uh, if there was an excessive expulsion of what they called yellow bile, otherwise known as diarrhea. (laughs) Oh, if you could see Maya's face right now, she does not look happy about this. It's too many times saying the word bile. (laughs) Bile's a great word. It's very evocative. So at the beginning of the 19th century, when they say cholera or cholera morbus, what they mean is a gastrointestinal illness with vomiting and diarrhea that is not usually severe and not usually spreading to other people. Uh, So it's like, it's a disruption of your own humor. So they see it as like a constitutional, not even illness, like a constitutional disturbance um, that's trying to realign your humors. So they're not necessarily seeing this kind of diarrhea as a problem. Enter cholera as we know it today. After 1817, there's a slow shift in the use of the word cholera as this like constitutional transition period of your body trying to realign itself to cholera as, and I quote, a relentless and deadly invader. So definitely after the 1830s, you'll remember there was a pandemic starting at that time in Europe. Cholera is referring to the new pandemic, whereas cholera morbus refers to the old constitutional ailment. And this is also called cholera nostra, which literally means our cholera. So, yeah. So to recap, in Europe, they're calling it our cholera versus what they would call either Asiatic, spasmodic, epidemic cholera. So people are still struggling to distinguish between the two ailments. Like they are, they're seen as two very different things but they're almost impossible to distinguish except retrospectively and with a lot of context. 
So the defining feature of this new cholera, the pandemic cholera, is that it's highly fatal, it's severe, and it's epidemic. But again, in retrospect, so like in the moment when the epidemic is starting, this is totally a judgment call. So by 1900, the, the old passive cholera was, a, was definitely a thing of the past. And by 1960, cholera has its ple- present day, very specific clinical definition. Um, So actually the category of cholera historically is pretty unstable and it's quite difficult to give a pre-19th century history of what we mean clinically by cholera. So it's impossible to pinpoint which one is which, except with like a lot of context. So from a from an evidence point of view, it would be it would be quite difficult to do a history of cholera pre 1800s. Its change in meaning kind of shows that it's it's increasingly seen as something that comes from outside. So it comes from elsewhere always, which we've seen with other diseases. The symptoms, I guess, mean that it is associated with, with something that is, that is dirty and that creates this impression that it comes from dirty foreign places to infect clean ones because we humans love our linear narratives. So you see how that could become problematic on a number of levels and how that might have led to some um, pretty xenophobic attitudes. It's also known as the blue disease, and that's because of the dehydration that caused a sunken cadaverous countenance, changing the hue of the skin. In any epidemic disease that causes any sort of physical change or disfigurement, that adds an extra layer of fear. Fun fact, it turns you blue because you lose so much water that your blood is too viscous to flow through your body and then you run out of oxygen and you start to turn blue. Let's take it back to London, 1854. So between 1831 and 1854, cholera hit London four times. Uh. Nothing was done to contain it because they didn't know how and people thought it was spread through miasma. So that literally means it was spread through bad air. Um, and usually characterized by a smell. And it's, it's seen as this like poison in the, the environment that's in the air. So in 1854, Soho, which is a neighborhood in London, and it's now like a vibrant touristy neighborhood, which is famous for its theaters and nightlife. Uh, but in 1854, it's overcrowded and filthy. And there are cesspits under the houses that probably have existed for as long as the houses and have never been cleaned out. So you can see the problem waiting to happen. By the end of August 1854, Southwark and Lambeth, so two other neighborhoods or boroughs in London, uh, they were the hardest hit. But Soho only had a few isolated cases. And on the 31st of August 1854, everything changed and the cholera broke out in epidemic proportions in Soho. And over the next three days, so that's the beginning of September, 127 people die. Um, I'm going to quote from this article I got from UCLA. It was as violent as it was sudden. During the next three days, 127 people living in or around Broad Street died. Few families, rich or poor, were spared the loss of at least one member. Within a week, three quarters of the residents had fled from their homes, leaving their shops shuttered, their houses locked, and the streets deserted. Only those who could not afford to leave remained there. It was like the Great Plague all over again. By the 10th of September, the number of fatal attacks had reached 500, and the death rate of the St. Anne's, Barrack Street, and Golden Square subdivisions of the parish had risen to 12.8%, more than double that for the rest of London. 
that it did not rise even higher was thanks only to Dr. Jon Snow. Woohoo, Jon Snow! Yeah, so everyone who's ever studied epidemiology has heard of Jon Snow. And he... Not the one with the wolf. Oh gosh, I forgot about that. So he's now considered the father of modern epidemiology, and I'm about to tell you why. Um, He lived in Soho during this time, and uh, when the disease broke out, he began to plot deaths to identify clusters and interview neighbors uh, to figure out what was going on, and he eventually identified the Broad Street water pump as the problem, the source of the outbreak. His research supported his theory that cholera was transmitted through water. He'd already published a book uh, in 1849 about this that I'm going to talk about later. He eventually got the parish authorities to agree to take the pump out of use, but by then the outbreak of cholera was, was already dying out and case numbers were going down. So it's kind of a symbolic gesture, but he's got a pub named after him and he's still famous for it. Yeah, so as I said, Jon Snow is now considered the father of modern epidemiology, and even even though his actions in 1854 didn't stop cholera in its tracks, it was his statistical approach to disease that was eventually so influential. The report he submitted about this, as well as his 1849 publication on the mode of communication of cholera, all of these contributions were overlooked and only really important in hindsight. So... He wasn't suggesting that cholera was any sort of organism. This was pre-germ theory, I think, or at the very least it, it hadn't gained any currency yet. And he wasn't suggesting anything particularly revolutionary about the mode of transmission. So he was still firmly within miasma theory, but really saying that the miasma was concentrated in the water, if that makes sense. Would you like to talk a bit about Jon Snow? I could tell you were really excited. It didn't matter if people were poor, if it was women getting water from the well. He went out and he talked to them and he found people who were sick and then he followed their movements and in mapping that was able to track Mm -hmm. the spread from the source and that was an approach that really hadn't happened, right? People understood protecting yourself when you were around someone that was sick, which, I mean, they did a bad job, right? With their beaky masks and what have you, but they they didn't necessarily understand how disease could go from more than like from one person to one person. This is a sidebar to do with Haiti also, but I went to a conference in Oxford actually um, where I met this guy who was doing cholera tracking in Haiti during the epidemic and they are using visual GPS mapping to identify like water sources and then where people around them are getting sick using technology to do essentially what Jon Snow did Mm -hmm. hundreds of years ago. And that's crazy. I think that kind of approach takes certain things for granted. And, and one of, one of those things is that it's not a problem to talk to everyone, regardless of what they do in life and where they were born. Like, I think maybe what, what he was doing in his approach to the epidemic in 1854 was maybe not revolutionary from a technical point of view, but it definitely was revolutionary from a social point of view because he was speaking to literally everyone in the neighborhood regardless of social status and assuming that health outcomes had nothing to do with that. It sounds from from the way he was conducting his work as though he was totally disregarding any any distinctions in, in birth or rank, which is not something that happened in the 19th century. Yeah, so people didn't find his work convincing. Um, 
and when his published work came out on the mode of communication of cholera, he was torn apart by the journals because they just didn't think it was persuasive in any way. And people were far more likely to stick with their humoral theory and their miasma. So at the time, Snow is actually really famous for his work on anesthesiology. He administered ether to Queen Victoria during the birth of Prince Leopold in 1853, so the year before this cholera outbreak, and Princess Beatrice in 1857, and that paved the way for acceptance of anesthesia in childbirth, which was huge. In our outline, we always have a little bullet for how was the disease treated, and I've put, it wasn't. <laughs> Not that that's funny. But, like, they, no. it wasn't. And now this brings us to the Great Stink of 1858. So I've chosen to stay in London because the events from the period of 1831 to 1854 are still in living memory, and they have a direct impact on what happens next. So in the summer of 1858, London experiences a heat wave. Its main waterway, which is the Thames, doubled as a dumping site for all of the city's raw sewage. So it's difficult to imagine how that must have smelled in 34 degree weather, which is how hot it got. It's like 105 Fahrenheit for those of you who are <laughs> like me and don't know that. So one of the papers um, which raised fears of contagious diseases was ERA, and their headline read, Londoners, look to your river, the Thames, a deadly cesspool. And that was from Sunday the 27th of June, 1858. And they were also stating that cases of typhus and diarrhea were increasing among those living near the Thames, although they didn't actually have any evidence to back that up. They were just sort of stirring the pot, if you will. So this is not the only headline like this either. People are seriously afraid of cholera coming back. And yeah, they're freaking out about, about the state of the Thames, about the smell, because remember miasma theory. And on the topic of smell, the Thames stank so badly <laughs> that the curtains of the Houses of Parliament were soaked in chloride of lime to block out the smell. Probably because of the pressure of the smell, there was a bill that was rushed through Parliament and became law in 18 days to provide more money to construct a massive new sewer scheme for London. And <laughs> the Times newspaper uh, said that members of Parliament had been forced by sheer stench <laughs> to solve the sewer issue. <laughs> I mean, Parliament is, like, right on the river, Yeah, it right? is. Westminster is, yeah. They're, they're literally on the banks of the Thames. It must have sucked. But so were a lot of other people. The sewers that were constructed as a result of this bill form the basis of London's sewer system today. So it was super well built by uh, Basil Jet, and he was paying attention to every single minute detail, and he actually planned not for the city of London that was, but the city of London that would be. So he actually built more than he had to in order to preempt the growth of the city. It's because of the new sewer that London escaped the later pandemics of cholera. So this is a clear case of fear and stink prompting action. And even though their fears were never realized, there was no outbreak of cholera in London in 1858. By some miracle, it prevented later outbreaks of this very thing they were afraid of despite the fact that they didn't actually understand how it was transmitted. Fun fact, during the Great Stink, Dr. Jon Snow died of a stroke. Mm. And he went unrecognized for his efforts in public health until way later. 
our our perception of cholera today is very much rooted in the 19th century, and that's something that I, I know from my own experience as well as from pop culture, but I would love to hear back from people about that. It's this, the 19th century is this weird time when medical understanding is still rooted in humoral theory, but the experimental method exists. Advances have been made in anatomy, technology, and transport. You, you know about blood circulation now, which is great. There are so many technological and uh, societal developments happening right now. We very much do perceive cholera as this disease of the past, and we know it's not, but we still think that way. Like, same with syphilis, same with flu, at least epidemic flu. Mm -hmm. Like, we think of these things that are no longer a problem. Yeah, they're not as threatening because we think with modern medicine we're much more able to cope with Mm -hmm. them. When it's actually no less scary than it ever was we just we just have better tools maybe for coping with particularly bad outbreaks yeah and especially when the we is us in north america or western especially Europe. yeah i was thinking yeah. about this perception and trying to figure out where it came from for me personally and i think it's pop culture and the first film i thought about was the painted veil i don't know if anyone's seen that it's the one with naomi watts i loved it it was beautiful it was sad it made me cry but it, it does a really good job of capturing that fear of cholera that must have existed before an adequate treatment must have been known. Yeah, it kind of captures the sense of doomed romance, but also the sense that cholera is a disease of the past. Love in the time of cholera? Yes, precisely. Uh, talk about doomed romance. And I totally forgot that cholera is in the opening of The Secret Garden. I also, I, okay, I don't think I've read The Secret Garden since I was about 12, so that's probably fair. But I, I read that and I was like, wait, is that what that is? I was absolutely <laughs> shocked. So in the opening scene of, of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which I also read when I was about 12, apparently Mary wakes up and everyone in her household has died of cholera and she's I do not remember and she's that. annoyed about it she's like where are my servants <laughs> oh my god and who let us read that I don't know yeah it's literally cholera that sets in motion the entire plot of the book anyway that's all I have for you for historical stuff to that point about popular culture though I was trying to think about if there were any references in like modern like contemporary popular culture and the only one i could think of was in the office they're like doing fake genealogical trees for the people in it and one of them is accused of being the great granddaughter of the woman that brought cholera to the united states but even there within that context it's like well it happened a long time ago and you should be ashamed of it yeah and that i mean i think that just brings us into this idea of like where is this disease now? And the truth is, it's really not a disease of the past. And like you said, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Cholera disproportionately affects people who are living in poverty in developing nations. And we rarely, if ever, hear of any cases in North America or Europe unless they are being imported by travelers. And there is this easy treatment. In fact, there even is an orally administered vaccine. Like You don't even have to get a shot. And yet millions of people are still getting sick every year and hundreds of thousands die right now there's cholera in haiti across southern and central africa so like mozambique drc somalia and kenya to name a few there's a major outbreak in yemen there's some present in india some in bangladesh that's not a comprehensive list but you sort of it paints a picture in step with what you were saying in history pretty much everyone was vulnerable in london when john snow was talking to people 
wealthy people had it, poor people had it. The wealthy still had an advantage, but the overall cleanliness, access to water, and just general knowledge of health and disease was pretty much the same across the board. Um, And that's not true anymore. Now we have these huge differences in who has access to information, treatment, or even just clean water. I think that's why the 19th century is such a pivotal moment as well, because like as time goes on, you start to see outcomes improving in certain places for very particular reasons and staying the same everywhere else. So I don't know. It's just um, it's a weird one. And I, I find your your point about about everyone being vulnerable quite poignant because I mean, one of one of the huge factors in most diseases that we're going to talk about is improved knowledge. And there was no way for anyone to have better knowledge. Yeah. And I think this also feeds into something which I'll I'll get a little more into at the end. I'll try and avoid it now because it's a lot to talk about. (laughs) But this idea that we really only start to research and work on curing diseases when privileged people get them and when privileged people aren't getting them anymore, it's much less likely that attention is going to be paid to them. So let's talk about one of the most recent modern day cholera outbreaks as an example of this disease, how it happened, what happened to whom, and a little bit of background info. So in 2010, Haiti was hit by a devastating earthquake. And I'm sure everybody listening remembers that, you know, there was a lot of we were, we are the world type singing, huge donations were made, the country was really wrecked. Um, And in response to the earthquake, lots of aid and development organizations rushed in and they were all trying to improve the well-being of Haiti, which actually is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And even before the earthquake happened, the country was known as the Republic of NGOs because they had so many NGOs per capita. Sidebar, NGO stands for non-governmental organization. So you're talking about like not-for-profits, charities, religious organizations, international organizations. At one point, they had the most NGOs per capita in the world. And after the earthquake, of course, this number skyrocketed. And the earthquake also took out most of what was already a really poor system of infrastructure in terms of roads, sanitation, sewage, education. So 10 months after this enormous earthquake, the first cholera outbreak in about 100 years swept through Haiti. Until there was another outbreak in Somalia in 2016, this was the single worst outbreak in modern history, totaling nearly a million cases over time and 10,000 people dead. Um, And again, we are so far from certain on those numbers and the likelihood is that it's actually much, much higher. So how did it get started? Where did it come from? Given that it had not been seen in the country for nearly 100 years prior and it was mostly not present in the region, how did they get it? Well, this is actually the most shocking part. It was brought by the United Nations. Oh. Yeah. Um, So UN peacekeeping troops were moved from Nepal to Haiti to help with disaster relief in the wake of the earthquake. Most likely, the people who were infected were just asymptomatic, but they weren't screened at all before entering the country, which really should have been a good practice to do, right? If you're coming from a place where it's endemic, you make sure you're not bringing it to a place where it doesn't exist. When they arrived, these peacekeeping troops were living in a camp on the side of a river, and the camp itself had really poor sanitation. Essentially, the sewage from the camp was just being poured off straight into the river, Um, And this river was used by the local communities for drinking, washing, cooking, watering their crops, 
every single use you need water for in everyday life. So within literally a matter of days, cholera is spreading through the nation. That's a nightmare. A literal nightmare. Yeah. And it's in issues like that that we see disparities, right? If you can afford clean bottled water, you're not going to be drinking from a river. If you went to school, you understand more about bacteria and germs and washing your food and washing your hands, our favorite topic. Wash right? your hands. There's a <laughs> Don't touch your face. Because of the earthquake, there are a lot of people who are living in displaced persons camps. People who are living in these camps obviously have little to no infrastructure, and that places them at even greater risk. And then the rainy season came and then a tropical storm hit and it basically just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And like I said already, this this weak infrastructure and the challenges in just getting around the country mean that a lot of these illnesses and deaths were just never reported. And in fact, the stigma developed around the disease um, because people didn't want to get taken away. They didn't want to go to a hospital where there were other sick people. Basically, they didn't want their family and friends to be notified that they were sick. They didn't want their home to be decontaminated so that they would just hide that they were ill. So throughout all of this, there are tons and tons of NGOs who are trying to facilitate ending this epidemic, plus all these other simultaneous issues that are affecting Haitians, like just the existing weak infrastructure and poverty, um, poor government. The problem is the NGOs just weren't really working within the mandate of the government's eradication strategy, which I'll run through in a second. They were just kind of doing whatever they felt was right. And they're all working at cross purposes and they're all working within their own personal mandate. And a lot of that is religiously affiliated organizations trying to go in and convert people. On top of that, Haiti was and frankly still is known for the rampant corruption and misspending amongst NGOs. And within the government itself, to be fair. Um, but even the most reputable organizations like the Red Cross or the UN are known for misusing their funds there. And in the end, it became apparent that humanitarian relief from countries who were donating, so that's like in the billions of dollars, would go back into the NGOs for like personnel use or administration and never really reach the people of Haiti where it was most needed. And I actually have this really vivid memory of being in a in a taxi in Montreal, going to the airport to go to Haiti. And I told him where I was going and the guy was from Haiti and he was furious. He was so mad about the NGOs. He was like, you see all these people coming in and they're from the UN and they're from all these places and they just stay in the fanciest hotels and they build themselves brand new houses and they buy fancy cars and they don't do anything for anyone. And it's easy to see why he might think that. Anyway, an estimated 93% of the money just never made it into the country in any meaningful way. And that's devastating. But aren't there so many studies being done about corruption and inequality to begin with? Like, isn't it one of those major, major factors in what keeps people poor? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's just like a whole another story about, especially in developing nations, like government corruption international organization corruption, how it forms and how we even define corruption, how, you know, like the post-colonial rhetoric really sets you up for an environment where you're like projecting a vision of what democracy should look like onto um, a community structure that maybe doesn't lend itself to it. And that's how you end up with corruption. And that there's just a lot within that. Um, so the government obviously recognized this as an issue and they developed an eradication strategy that had a couple of prongs to it. 
but they needed to do it within this context of limited infrastructure, limited supplies, limited human resources. So one thing they did was they had these rapid response teams. And this is part of what people were afraid of, right? If you went to a hospital or clinic and you were sick, a team of community health workers or local nurses would get your address from the sick person. And within 48 hours, they would be there. They would be testing the people in the area. They would clean your house and they would try and do what we call active surveillance following the trail of someone who was sick and trying to figure out who else could have been sick. Luckily, treatment of the disease is pretty straightforward, so they also focused on making sure everybody knew how to create or had access to oral rehydration therapy. The government also tried to focus as much as they could on clean drinking water, sanitation habits, and they launched a lot of campaigns to educate people, but the infrastructure was really severely damaged or just not there, so it made accessible clean water really hard to make a reality even though that's obviously an inherent need and i will use the term wash later which is an abbreviation for water sanitation and hygiene a few years into the epidemic the government also implemented a vaccination campaign and that was a little controversial because usually vaccinations aren't recommended in the middle of an epidemic um, and they didn't want it to take money and time and awareness raising away from sanitation and hygiene programming. However, it was actually really effective for a vaccination cam- campaign and it ended up changing a lot of the norms around vaccination in the midst of an outbreak. So let's go back to the UN. They do not come off great in all of this. In fact, they really just don't have a good history in Haiti in general. That poor camp sanitation is not a good starting place. I mean, they really, of all people, should have known better. And that contributed to a negative perception. And a lot of that had to do with accusations of sexual coercion. There was also a perception of personnel really living like the good life and maybe just not contributing as much as they could to Haitian society. All this is not to say that the UN didn't do any good and was just like terrible in Haiti, but there were clearly a lot of failures in administration here. So in 2016, the UN finally admitted that they were responsible for the arrival of cholera in Haiti. So that means it took them six years, took them six years. And even then, they still have not admitted legal fault. Um, so they don't want to get like sued for it, basically. But they have admitted that it was their actions that caused this to begin. Um, and that's when they really started to implement some actual aid. They committed about $400 million, although to date, they've actually only raised about $20 million from partner countries, and they've only spent about $3 million. However, their acknowledgement of responsibility did lead to increasing interventions, and this improved coordination with the government, general goodwill, and it allowed them the UN and the government to work more effectively together. So then the UN began to support the mobile response networks of the community health workers, supported the education of cholera, supported the wash kits to improve water sanitation, and supported the oral vaccination programs. And they also started to figure out ways of giving back to communities in need by going in and sort of seeing like what would be of most use here and trying to provide it. Right now, basically, January of 2020, they had a really important landmark in cholera eradication, which is that they had one year since the last reported case. But that means that the outbreak swept through Haiti for nine years. (laughs) That's a lot, right? And it also, just because it wasn't reported, doesn't mean that it's not still there somewhere, but this is still, it's big and it's good. And I think something to take away from this is that One of the things you see within this example is that cholera is a disease that follows the lines of inequality. 
only the people and places that are already vulnerable are really going to be affected by it. Places that are vulnerable to natural disaster, don't have infrastructure or have conflict are way more likely to then also be affected by cholera. And obviously Haiti meets those criteria and the newest outbreak in Yemen also meets that criteria. These places that are already really vulnerable, by the way, are also places where reporting and surveillance are really weak. So it's hard for us to even know the reality of the situation on the ground on top of that, which makes our ability to respond appropriately even harder. And then within those countries that are vulnerable, there are groups that are more likely to be affected. So like I said before, those living in displaced or refugee camps, extreme poverty, or even women are far more vulnerable to cholera. In that instance, it's just because the activities that women are often doing within their household make them much more vulnerable. And we can even see that in the microcosm of Haiti, right? So Haiti is half of an island called Hispaniola, and it shares the other half with the Dominican Republic, but the DR is significantly more developed. It has higher literacy rates, has more infrastructure, has tourism. Cholera did cross the border. It does not pay attention to borders. But the Dominican Republic had 25 times less cases. Why? More advanced water and health systems, better preparedness, better response. In short, it's another ongoing and kind of depressing look at how the poor get poorer and the sick get sicker and the poor get sicker. I'd be interested to take that comparison between the Dominican Republic and Haiti even further. I mean, I I would be obviously super interested to see whether there was any ill feeling on the on the part of Dominicans. So easy answer. There's a huge amount of xenophobia between the Dominican Republic and Haiti and cholera absolutely contributed to that. Great. But I think uh, all of your this idea really just contributes to this idea of, yeah, like a xenophobic response to disease. Like it's about the person, not the sickness. Mm-hmm. Cholera is 100% preventable and treatable. And yet all these people are still dying from it. And I feel strongly that it's because these people in really poor countries tend to be overlooked, right? It's not a disease that's affecting us in North America and Europe in the donor countries as strongly. And... So it really feeds into something that's called the 1090 gap in global health. And what that means is 10% of the funding goes towards researching diseases that are common in places where 90% of preventable deaths occur. So there's this huge gap in how much money goes into researching the diseases that cause the most morbidity and mortality. And I think it's really evident that cholera is a part of that. It's very out of sight, out of mind. And it, and that's, sad and the the who has actually modeled data that shows that if we don't make big changes now then the amount of people who are dying of cholera will double in the next 20 years and all we need to do is just like care now it's the syphilis (laughs) conversation all over again isn't it yeah so i mean that's that's pretty much it it's just i think more than more than a lot of other diseases right now it's it is known as a disease of inequality, if you are more well off, you are not drinking out of a river and picking fruit straight off the tree. You have a little bit more privilege than that. So it, it really is a disease that follows lines of inequality. And if you live in a situation where you have poor sewage, poor water treatment, um, no plumbing, you're just mm-hmm. so much more vulnerable to it. And I mean, if, if you already know that boiling your water will get rid of most problematic pathogens, then like, 
you're already much better off. Like prevention is also about education. Absolutely. Yeah. So there we have it. Oof, that was a depressing foray into the 19th century. It's exactly as Dickens depicted it. Just vomiting everywhere. Uh, <laughs> tell me about something that made you happy this week. Well, I was really happy to read the good news about how renewable energy is being used during this time and all like the positive environmental impacts. And I think that that's been really, I don't know, a shining light, like a little bit depressing because then it just means everything is human's fault. But I feel like we already knew that a little bit. So I enjoyed that. That's wonderful. It's nice to see a silver lining. What about you? What was the happiness this week? I started watching and finished the entire series of the show called Agent Carter, which is a Marvel spinoff. It reminds me a lot of Miss Fisher's murder mysteries, but but 1940s style. Like it's it's not high art, but it is highly enjoyable. And there's all these like nice 1940s fashions, and it's a feel good spy kind of thing. Oh, okay. I have another hooray. I made um, I made flapjacks today because literally all I have left in my pantry were oats, golden syrup, sugar, and raisins. And I added some protein powder to it. That sounds amazing. Do you have a fermentation station update? My fermentation station is defunct. I um, haven't been to the grocery store in two weeks because that was the plan. And um, I doubt I'm going to find any more flour anytime soon. So I'm just trying to not kill my sourdough starter and hope for better days. What about you? No new real fermentations, but I did make a great trade with a friend who I sewed some masks for. And because my kombucha is growing so many babies, I'm just like overflowing with the scobies to make kombucha. So I sort of forced some on her and was like, learn. And now it's only been like three days and she's already deeply, deeply invested and is like sending me pictures. And then also vaguely fermentation related. There's just no yeast anywhere. So I've been finding workarounds and suddenly in a flash of genius, I remembered beer bread and soda bread. But obviously I can't eat beer bread because of the gluten. So I made a cider bread and it was oh, so good, like real life good, not just gluten free good. I'm going to be trying that recipe for sure. And I think it should go in the show notes. Sold. Great. Okay. And I think that's that. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. <laughs>